Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called More Nevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. This is Daniel Karapkin. You are now viewing this from the yeshiva, webyeshiva.org uh, Facebook page. And we are here to spend a half an hour to study Moreh Nebuchim, the Rambam's Guide for the Perplexed. We are uh, uh, in the middle of chapter 45, which is a short chapter that we began last week. Uh, and we're going to embark, hopefully, on chapter 46 today. But first, I want to finish chapter 45. Uh, in the, we are using the uh, English translation of, Ra of Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Pines, um, uh, who uh, did a masterful translation of the Morin Nebuchim, despite some of, its, um, uh, some of its flaws. And we are therefore on page 96 in the Pines edition of Morin Nebuchim. Um, we were discussing last time, really trying to create a comparison contrast between chapter 44 and chapter 45. Chapter 44 was a discussion of the times that we find in Tanakh where God is described as either having eyes or seeing. And now we're in chapter 45 where the Rambam uses the term Shema, listening, the verb listening, to describe uh, a divine form of listening or hearing. And we had mentioned the first two out of the three definitions of the term hearing or listening. Um, and by the way, um, we're going to just continue using the handout that we had um, distributed on the Facebook group, group Shi'ur in Moren Vuchim. We'll continue with that. Uh, so if you don't have a copy of that, you can just easily open up a new tab and get that from the uh, from that Facebook group Shi'ur in Moren Vuchim. So the first two definitions of hearing, uh, the Rambam had said, it is used to sometimes mean to hear. The second definition, to actually hear that which is audible. The second definition is to accept something. I accept your words. Like when I say, I hear you, it doesn't necessarily mean that I am expressing my ability to, for my that my ears are working correctly, that I have good working uh, audible faculty. Um, but rather that I accept what you're saying as being something that which is either true or resonant. And definition number three is what we're up to now. And that is the word is also used in the sense of, and I'm going to use the terms that Kafich uses to translate from the Arabic, which is Yidi'a and Hakara. Uh, Pines translates it as science and knowledge, but the word science really doesn't have that meaning in our English today. So it means knowledge and recognition. Yidi'a and hakara, right? Meaning that it when you hear when the Torah uses the verb to be shomea, it can sometimes mean a person internally realizing something to be intellectually, uh, in uh, to be intellectually enhancing that person or that party, 
where I take in a piece of information, I am Shomea, that piece of information. So, um, so the first example that the Rambam gives is from the, um, is from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 28. It's source number 15 in the, in the handout. This is part of the Tochacha that appears in Parshat Kitavo. Yisa Hashem Alecha Goy Merachok, that God will bring upon you a foreign nation that will be your captor nation. And the end of the verse says, Goy Asher Lo Tishma Lishono, a nation whose language you will not be Shomea. And there it clearly means that you don't know or recognize that language. It's got nothing to do with hearing the language, it's got nothing to do with accepting the language, but rather it's got to do with understanding the language. So that's therefore it refers to an idea of understanding or cognizing something. Okay, in all, uh, uh, the interpretation being whose speech you shall not know. In all cases in which the word hearing occurs in relation to God, and in which according to the external meaning of the text, the word appears to be used in its first sense, so now the Rambam is going to tell us that when we use the verb shomea in the context of God, it also has an equivocal meaning, meaning that it has it can have one of two meanings. It all depends on the context. Sometimes when we talk about God being shomea, when God hears something, it will have to do in the first sense, meaning that it expresses the notion of apprehension, which pertains to the third sense. Now what that means is, is that if the verse in its most plain meaning is that God audibly heard something, well, we know that that can't be accurate. That is purely metaphorical. Why is that? Because God, as we explained in, in last week's uh, discussion of chapter 44, to say that God is capable of sensory perception means that God is, means that God is being affected by something which is external to him. And that, by definition, is impossible. That's an impossibility because God is not an affected God. God is the affector, but the non-affected. So therefore, to say that God sees or hears something is a misnomer. Um, so therefore, if we ever find the verb shomea in the context of God, and the face value of that verse in its context seems to be implying that God hears something audibly, it doesn't really mean that, but it means that God knows something to be accurate or to be the case. Thus, and God heard, um, that it says that Vayihi Ha'am Kimitz Onanim in the book of Numbers chapter 11. Vayishma Hashem Vayicharapo. The people were murmurers, they were complaining, and God hears this and he becomes angry. Now, what does it mean that God hears the murmurings? God is aware of the murmurings. Again, God is not being affected by any sound waves, but rather God is aware of what is going on. And that's what the Torah is describing. In all these passages, the apprehension of science, or really knowledge, is meant that God becomes aware of something. If, however, according to the external meaning of the text, the word is used in its second sense, now, if you, there is, however, contextually, you may encounter a verse in Tanakh where it's not referring to audible hearing, but rather it's referring to, in human terms, where someone accepts something to be the case. And sometimes that type of shomea is used in the context of God as well. And therefore, what does it mean? It expresses the notion that God may be exalted 
responds or does not respond to the prayer of him who prays. So therefore, if we hear the uh, discussion in Tanakh of God hearing someone's cries or hearing someone's prayers, it doesn't mean, again, that God is being affected through sensory perception by that person's prayers, but rather God chooses to respond to that person's prayers. And this is a very important idea as far as what the effect of prayer is. If, according to the Rambam, the philosophical definition of God is that God is an unaffected God, God cannot be affected, then how does prayer work? Well, the Rambam's not going to discuss exactly now how prayer really works, because doesn't prayer, uh, isn't the objective of prayer to affect God, to move God in some way? Well, if you understand that God is unmoving and unaffected, so then what does prayer do? What prayer does is that it, 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 it lets God know that I, I, as a human being, wish to develop a relationship with him. And the Rambam actually develops this idea more thoroughly towards the end of Moren Nebuchim, so we're not going to discuss this in any great extent today. But rather, when it says that God was Shomea, the person's cries or the person's prayers, it means that God chooses to respond. Not that God is in any way affected by that prayer, but that God chooses to respond to that person's prayer. So it doesn't mean that God, so in a sense, God accepts the prayer, but how is that manifest? It's manifest in the sense that God responds by providing some kind of alleviation of suffering or blessing to that individual who is called out to God. And so therefore, just some examples of this. Um, uh, so uh, uh, in, um, in Exodus chapter 22, it says, Im anei ta'ane oto, ki im elai shamoa eshmatza'akato. That if you afflict or oppress in any way the orphan or the widow, when they cry out to me, I shall surely hear that cry. Now, what that means is, again, this is a person calling out in, in prayer or in pain to God. God says, I will hear that person's prayer and I will respond to them. Uh, for I am gracious. Uh, I will hear for I am gracious. Um, and here too, uh, the Torah is talking about taking collateral of a nightgown, a night garment from a poor person when you lend him money. You must return that garment to him in the evening because God says if you do not, he will have nothing with which to sleep. And when he cries out to me, it says in Exodus chapter 22, I will hear because I'm benevolent. And what that means is I will respond. I will respond to you, the creditor, for having exploited the poverty of the poor man. Okay, next. Um, incline thine ear, O Lord, and hear. Um, we don't, I did not actually utilize that sentence, but that's from a verse in the second book of Kings. But the Lord would not hear your voice, nor give ear to you. This is from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 1, when you cried out to Hashem because you had accepted the reports of the spies and you had immediate remorse when you were told that you would have to wander for 40 years, that God did not listen to your voice, which means God did not respond to you. In other words, he basically kept the decree intact. Um, and as it says in Isaiah, the first chapter, 
which is the pre in preparation for the destruction of the temple. Yea, even when you uh, cry out to me, I it, uh, even when you increase your prayers, I will not hear. Okay, uh, and I will not hear you again in the book of Yirmiyahu, ki einenu shomeya otach, as in Jeremiah chapter 7. This use is frequent. As for these, okay, this use is frequent. And um, and so, again, whenever we find the word shomeya, the verb shomeya in context with God, it either means God, again, is not affected by sensory perception, but it either means that God is aware of something, or God chooses to respond to a cry, or chooses to not respond, as the case may be. As for these figurative senses and similes, now, the Rambam, in these last four lines of this chapter, is basically responding, as the Abarbanel in his commentary points out, to the fact that there are so many other words that, the, that are used that anthropomorphize God that the Rambam has not yet addressed. And he's going to address them in a more general sense, in the ensuing chapters. As for these figurative senses and similes, you will be given an explanation that will quench your thirst and clear your doubts. So for the next four chapters, chapters 46 through 49, the Rambam is going to present an, a philosophical exposition uh, uh, as to the use of anthropomorphic terminology to describe Hashem. The meaning of all of them will be made manifest to you so that no difficulty will remain in anything that is in them. And therefore, uh, I have for you at the bottom of the sheet the Abarbanel's list of anthropomorphic terms that have not been addressed by the Rambam that appear in the Torah in relation to God, that provide God with bodily attributes, at least seemingly, that the Rambam has chosen not to address. And they are Yad, the hand, Ozen, the ear. Remember, we talked about this last time is that whereas in the previous chapter the Rambam had addressed the ayin of God, here he does not uh, present the ozen of God, the organ of hearing, but rather only discusses the verb shomea. Etzba, the finger, kaf, the palm, pe, the mouth, zeroa, the arm, yamin, the right side or the right hand of God, sefatayim, the lips, kol, the voice, lashon, the tongue, af, the nose, as in Vayichar Afashem, that God's nostrils were infl infl in, uh, became inflared. Me'ayim, uh, which means innards or intestines. Reach, the fragrance or the smell of God. And Ofafot, our eyelids. All of these things, all of these words, can be found in Tanakh and used uh, to describe Hashem in some way. The Rambam has not devoted chapters of this book to, the, to those words. And he says, I'm going to explain them all. Now, the Abarbanel in his commentary does not tell us why the Rambam has chosen to ignore these words until now and to not devote uh, individual chapters to those words. But it would seem to me, if I was trying to unpack the Rambam a little bit more, the words that I've just quoted for you, hand, ear, finger, palm, mouth, arm, etc., these words do not have an equivocal meaning. Now, remember, in almost all of the chapters that we've seen up until now, uh, all of the terms and the words that the Rambam used, whether they were nouns or verbs, he started off by saying it's an equivocal term, which means it has multiple meanings, and therefore it lends itself, when describing Hashem, to a 
a meaning that does not mean the literal physical object, but it means something else. In all of these terms that we're going to be looking at in the ensuing chapters, especially the next chapter, chapter 46, these words are not, as the Rambam calls them, equivocal terms. A yad is a yad, an ozen is an ozen, an ear is an ear. It doesn't have multiple meanings within Tanakh. To contrast, for example, the previous chapter, the word ayin is an equivocal term, because as the Rambam had pointed out to us, it can mean the center of something, or a wellspring, or a crossroads in the, in the path. And it's, so in addition to meaning an eye, which is the organ of sight, it can mean something totally different, and therefore there's more elasticity in that word to describe Hashem. But these words are much more concretized, they're much more limited in their meaning to be able to play with them and say that they mean something different in the context of God. These words that I've just quoted for you from the Abarbanel clearly mean bodily organs of a human being. And these are therefore anthropomorphic terms that are used to describe Hashem. And that's the Rambam segue into the next chapter. At some point, we must resign ourselves to the fact that we don't have that much latitude in redefining words that are used in the context of God to remove any sense of corporeality from them. Why then? will we find words that are so corporeally uh, uh, created in our minds and they are nonetheless used in the context of God. And that's what we have the, the ensuing chapters. That's why they're going to be presented to us now. Okay, so that's our introduction to chapter 46. Second introduction that I'd like to offer for chapter 46 is that the Rambam previously had already discussed the concept of Dibra Torah Kilshon B'nei Adam. This is a, a term that you'll find in the language of Chazal, of our sages in the Talmud, that many times the Torah speaks in the language of the common person. Even though the text at its face value cannot mean what you think it means, but the Torah does so because it speaks colloquially so that people can associate it with an idea. The Rambam had focused on this in chapter 33, which we've seen some time ago, and that's what he's going to make reference now. The difference, however, between chapter 33 and our chapter is that the Rambam presented a very simple idea in chapter 33, that there are certain concepts that if you try to present them to a neophyte, to a beginner, the beginner will not be able to appreciate the concept, and if anything, that concept will be subject to misinterpretation and will also potentially injure or damage in some way the beginner. Um, and the analogy that he had given back in chapter 33 is if you have an infant uh, who's just starting to eat food in addition to its mother's milk, you have to start with very, very simple, uh, smashed, uh, drained, pureed food, right? The, uh, the, the pureed carrots and the pureed peas and so forth. You cannot start feeding that child bread and whole fruit and things like that, because if you do, you, the child will choke, God forbid, or the child's stomach will be injured in some way. Similarly, when it comes to the nutrition of the mind, of the intellect, you have to start a person off with baby food, and then you can build up and develop more complex and esoteric ideas. And the same thing is true about a discussion of God. We can explain God in very simplistic terms to a beginner. 
and just talk about God's existence without really getting into any uh, significant depth about who that God or what that God is in, in, in God's essential definition. Um, the Rambam is going to revisit this idea of Dibra Torah Kilshon B'nai Adam, but in this chapter he's going to provide us with a philosophical contextualization of this idea. And really, if we were to try and describe this the way the Rambam begins this chapter, it's really a philosophical exposition on epistemology. What I mean, the term epistemology, is the study of how humans cognize, of how humans obtain knowledge. That's really what the fancy word epistemology means. And what the Rambam is going to present to us is um, a description about how uh, typically human beings develop a knowledge of God. And as such, because human beings develop a knowledge of God through things that are external to God and not through things that are intrinsic to God, it becomes necessary to describe God in terms that human beings will be capable of grasping and appreciating because they don't really understand the true essence of Hashem, but they understand only God through his, the context of things that are surrounding him and that describe him. So that's really the, the, the introduction. And I want us to begin this idea, and we'll break it down as simply as we can. We have mentioned in one of the chapters of this treatise, and he's referring to chapter 33, as I had mentioned, that there is an immense difference between guidance leading to a knowledge of the existence of a thing and an investigation of the true reality of the essence and substance of that thing. I can make it clear to even a very beginner intellect that God exists even though you may not be ready for, for to, to hear an explanation of what that God is uh, and what his essential nature is, but at least you're capable, even at a very beginning stage, to understand the existence of that being that you will not yet be able to understand. And the reason is that guidance leading to the knowledge of the existence of a thing can be had even if that should be through a number of things that really do not describe the essential nature of that being, but rather are described in the terms of three things that are external to that being. And the Rambam now tells us what those three things are. Number one, the Rambam says, through the accidents of the thing. Now what the word accident means is, this is a philosophical term, it doesn't mean crashing your car into something. The word accident over here means that something that is non-intrinsic non-essential to that person's being. In philosophy we talk about the intrinsic character characteristics of a human being. What is the intrinsic or the essential nature of a human being? The human intellect. The fact that I have skin or the fact that I have hair is not an essential definition of my humanity. It is an, ac it is an accident of my humanity, which means, yes it's true, that all human beings have skin and hair as a general rule, but that's, that's not an essential definition of that which makes me a human being. Because animals have skin and hair, mammals have skin and hair, even though they're not human. So what defines my humanity is not my skin and hair, but rather it is my intellect, which is unique to the human condition. And if I wanted to be able to define my, a, a human being in terms of that which makes humans unique, I would not say that they have hair or they have skin. Okay? 
So that's the, the, so the first way you can define something without actually understanding its essential nature is defining it by one of its accidents. The second way is through its acts, it, the, the, the actions that that thing which you wish to define performs or the acts that are performed on that thing. So you can describe how that thing that you wish to, to uh, demonstrate its existence uh, leaves evidence of its existence through its behavior or through how things behave or interact with it. Okay? But that, so that only proves that that thing, which we'll, we haven't yet talked about what that thing is yet, obviously we're leading in the direction of God, I can prove to you that God exists by things that happen in the world or things that happen to God or the way that God interacts with certain things, with other things. But that still will not help you define God essentially. And the third way is through a relation which may be very remote from the thing existing between the latter and the things other than itself. That's different from the second uh, definition and you'll see how that is. In other words, we'll see evidence of God based upon how things are affected by God. Not through actions directly emanating from that being, but rather how other things behave or react to the existence of that thing. Okay? So, the three definitions of how I can prove to you that something, which we're not going to, we're going to get to God in a minute, but I can prove to you that something exists without explaining to you or teaching you what the essential nature of that thing is in one of three ways. Either by describing the accidents of that thing, things that are not essential to the definition of that something, but rather are features of that something that may be shared by other things. The second way is to describe the effects or the actions that emanate from that something, or actions that are done to that something. And the third way is to look at how other things are affected by that something. And that will prove the existence of that something even when I have not demonstrated what that something is really essentially. Okay? Let us continue. For instance, if you wish to make known the ruler of a certain region of the earth to one of the people of that ruler's country who does not know him, you can inform him about that ruler and draw his attention to the latter's existence in many different ways. I want to prove to you that the Prime Minister of Canada exists. Okay? Now, you may have never heard of Justin Trudeau. You may not be aware that he is the Prime Minister, and you may not even be aware that the country called Canada even has a Prime Minister. But I can prove to you that he exists and that he is the Prime Minister in one of the three ways that we just described. And we're using him as an example of a ruler, okay? Uh, number one, one of them consists in your saying that the ruler is a tall individual who is white in color and gray-haired. Thus, you would have made him known through his accidents. So I can show you a picture of Justin Trudeau. And that in itself, oh, so you see a man in the picture who has black hair, now he has a beard since COVID, handsome looking guy, wears a nice suit, looks like a Canadian, and I can tell you, you see, that man, that man exists, and he is the Prime Minister. Okay, he's got a little, even he's got a little sign 
uh, above him or a caption on the screen that calls him Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada. So you, that's all you know. You just know that he exists. You know that he goes by the appellation of Prime Minister, but that's all you know about him. You know nothing about the way he thinks. You know nothing about his, his uh, interaction with the subjects of the country, but you certainly do know of his existence. Okay, that's number one. Number two is, you may also say that he is the one whom you see surrounded by a great company of people who are riding or on foot with drawn swords around him and banners raised above his head while trumpets are sounded in front of him, or that he is the one residing in a castle that is in a certain city of that region of the earth, or that he is the one who ordered this wall to be built or this bridge to be laid, or you may mention similar actions of his and similar relations of his to what is other than he. So another way of demonstrating that the ruler of the country exists is to demonstrate, look, he sits in a special chair in the, the building in Parliament in Ottawa, and that demonstrates that he is the Prime Minister. Or he lives in a certain house where Prime Ministers live, or where Kings live, and therefore that demonstrates that he's the Prime Minister. Or look, he is the one who is attributed with passing a certain legal legislation, uh, and his name is associated with that bridge or that accomplishment that only a king or a prime minister can do. All of these, again, are external to who that ruler is, but they certainly demonstrate the existence of that ruler. And the third way is, you may, however, indicate his existence through circumstances that are of a more hidden nature than those that have been mentioned. Meaning, up until now, I've described the, uh, the prime minister of Canada by either you have a picture of him or you see things that he has done. But there's an even more disconnected way of proving his existence, and that is by seeing evidence in things that are not directly connected to him. And what kind of evidence would that be? For instance, if someone asks you, does this country have a ruler? I have no way of knowing. Is there a king in this country? Is there even a legal system in this country that would be legislated by a, a legislator, such as a king or a prime minister? You will answer him, yes, undoubtedly. And if he asks you, what proof is there for this? You will tell him, this proof is to be found in the fact that while, and the Rambam gives you the following analogy, and I'll, we don't have to read the exact text, but he writes as follows. You see a little tiny man, a scrawny little guy, who's a money changer, and he's sitting in front of a table that is stacked with coins and bills, and a man comes over to him who's two or three times his size, big, strong, burly guy, and asks the man for a coin because he is poor and he doesn't have anything to eat. And this scrawny little guy says, get out of here, you're bothering me. I don't want to see you. Get lost. You've been hocking me a chinik. You've been bothering me all this time. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I've already given you yesterday. Get lost. And that's it. Now, this big burly guy has the ability to snap the scrawny guy like a twig in half and just walk off with all the money that's on the table. What prevents him from doing so? It is the law. It is a law. And if there is law, then there must be a legislator, and that legislator would be the ruler of the land or the governing body of the land. So the proof that there exists a king in this land 
is the fact that there is lawfulness in the land. The mission in Pirkei Avot says, you know, you're supposed to pray for the welfare of the government, because without the existence of government, ish et re'ehu chayim each person would swallow each other one alive. The fact that you see lawfulness prevailing in the streets of your city is proof that there's a police force, is proof that there is a legislature, and is proof ultimately that there is a ruling governmental body that exists in this country. Do I know anything about that governmental body, about that ruler? I may not know anything, but the evidence, even though it's not directly emanating from that ruler, provides evidence of that ruler's existence. Okay, so therefore, accordingly, this is a proof of the fact that the city has a king. Thus, you would have proved the existence of the king through the fact that matters in the city proceed in an orderly fashion, the cause of which is the fear of the ruler and the anticipation of the punishment that he meets out. Now, we're just out of time today. What I'd like you to, to, to think about, if you had, maybe if I can even offer you a, a little homework assignment, is that where else do we find in medieval writings these types of analogies of kings? Uh, maybe we'll do this next week. We'll take a look at the Kuzari, which is, a gen which is written a generation before the Rambam's Morin of Uchim. Uh, we'll take a look at the Kuzari in the first essay, uh, paragraphs 19 through 25, where Rabbi Yehuda Halevi also provides us with the analogy of a king, this time the Indian king, known as the famous Indian king parable of the Kuzari. And we'll maybe do a little bit of a comparison contrast. But it's clear that the Rambam is talking about trying to get to the essential nature of God, which is very different, a very different kind of project from what we'll see next time from Rabbi Yehuda Halevi. I wish you a wonderful day, and we'll continue with Mir Hashem next time.